I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. <clears throat> Well, that was appropriately geological. <laughs> and it gives you a sense of scale and majesty, and yet ice calving is a, it's dramatic because it's a quick and terrifying and beautiful event. And the peculiarity of climate change is it um, is gradual and slow and inexorable and goes on for decades and centuries. And we're used to seeing problems in terms of you know, Y2K or something that's going to come in five years, we're going to fix it before it happens, and it turns out there wasn't a problem after all. But uh, quick problems, quick solutions. This is not a quick problem. It's slow, it's enormous, it's inexorable. But as uh, climatologist Stephen Schneider pointed out to me, you watch things and any of the signals you're watching, if they're less than 10 years, they're not climate yet. They're just weather. Like the current California drought is in that category. So to see the problem in the long-term frame then gives you a chance to see any potential solutions almost certainly have to be in a long-term frame. And if you imagine you're going to do something sudden and quick that will somehow solve the problem, you don't understand the problem. Someone who does understand the problem and is thinking about the solution in the problem's terms is David Keith. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. And, and thank you very much, Stuart, for not just the invite, but also for encouraging the title, the patient geoengineering title, because it's helped me to crystallize some of the way I've been thinking about this problem in a way that really feels new. So let me start first with a, a, a very simple background on what the idea is, and then I'll plunge into a bunch of what I think my biases are and, and how, how we might consider this wacky idea. The basic idea of solar geoengineering is the idea that we could partially and imperfectly reduce some of the risks of climate change that come from the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by putting uh, reflective aerosols, say sulfuric acid, a pollutant, in the stratosphere where it would reflect away a little bit of sunlight, say 1% at the peak. That's really the core idea, and this idea has a kind of terrifying leverage in the sense that um, a gram of these aerosols in the stratosphere roughly offsets the climate force, or forcing as we say, of a ton of carbon dioxide in the lower atmosphere. It doesn't eliminate the problem, but it masks some of it. And that's a ratio of a million to one, kind of like the ratio of chemical weapons to nuclear weapons. So it's that scale of thing that we're dealing with for better or for worse. I'm going to start, um, start with some explanation of my personal biases and see if I can get my timer to work here. There we go. Um, so, first, nature. Over the last 10 millennia, especially over the last century, 
Humanity has caused what, in my view, is a kind of environmental holocaust on lots of things I love. That's a bias I come into it with it. There's different ways to look at that problem, but that's how I look at it. There's all sorts of things we can't go visit anymore. Moas, these wonderful, huge flightless birds that used to be in New Zealand, woolly mammoths, you name it, uh, tall grass prairie that used to be where Chicago now stands, etc. And rapid climate change will help to drive a nail into what's left because it's hard for the world to adapt to all the changes we've made through most, more than any other single thing, through agriculture, actually, and then put rapid climate changes on top of it. Um, I've been lucky personally, and this doesn't give me any special insight, it's just a useful bias, uh, to have spent a lot of time in the big wild. So I've done a bunch of trips. This is a month-long trip on North Baffin Island I did with two friends. I've done quite a few of these long trips. The picture before was uh, uh, from a kayak in Antarctica. And, and I've had some sense of the, this, this big wilderness, and it means a lot. But it also raises a kind of obvious paradox. So most people assume that uh, somebody who cares about the environment wouldn't think about engineering the whole thing, that those are naturally antagonistic viewpoints. And a central thing I want to convince you about is that it's not simple. And that, that even though one's instant reaction is that the kind of classic environmental values many of us have would suggest that we shouldn't do something like this, that in fact, given the actual trade-offs we face, it might be the sound thing to do. So I said a little bit about what I think has happened to parts of the net remaining natural environment. But I also think it's important to say what my biases are about what the risks to people are. So it's now become quite common to imagine that climate poses some kind of existential threat to humanity. I don't buy it. I, I think there are lots of big threats to humanity, but I don't think climate is one, not in a simple way anyway. First of all, there's a, a tendency to see everything as... as uh, uh, as going to hell. But I think it's important to say that in many ways the last century or two have been amazing for humanity. Less hunger, less violence, even counting the big wars of the last century. Less violence than we've seen per capita in, in millennia. Less ignorance, more art, lots of things for humans have gone right. And I think the big threat to humans is not climate change but other humans. Uh, uh, you know, you name it. Bioweapons, killer robots, nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I'm being saying killer robots to be flipped, but meaning uh, uh, the, the IT that people, the, the, the information technologies that people uh, partly in this town or area are inventing are potentially lethal to humanity. So I think those are the things that, that pose really, really existential threats, not, uh, not climate change. So geoengineering is, is ugly. And the fact that we're considering something like solar geoengineering now does represent a kind of colossal failure of governance, at least the way we are now considering it. And, and as I said, many people believe it's scary. My goal is to convince you that it cannot be casually dismissed, that, that there are hard trade-offs here about whether or not we do it. And that's true even almost wherever you come from in terms of kind of shared values about the environment. So I'm going to take this in a few steps, ranging from the kind of big picture 
to their really geeky minutia, thinking that there will be some uh, uh, scientists in the audience. So let me start with a story about scenarios. It turns out that uh, with this, as with many other technologies, um, a huge part of how you view it, of how effective or ineffective it might be, of how risky it is, depends not on the inherent technical features of the thing itself, but on um, how we use it, how much we use it, how quickly we use it. So let's start with scenarios. Um, these are, I've got a bunch of hand-drawn sketches here. They have roughly the right numbers on them, but it's, uh, uh, they're hand-drawn because the truth is we're making a lot of this stuff up, especially about the future. So I could give you model results from postdoctoral fellows that show you what carbon dioxide concentrations will be to six significant digits in 2100, but we don't know. And this thing called business as usual, of course, is not likely to be usual, and exactly what will happen over the next 100 years, we don't know very well. So that's one of the reasons I, I like these hand-drawn sketches. But, uh, so what this is on the, on, the, on the vertical axis is emissions of carbon in, in billions of tons a year. So now we're emitting close to 10 billion tons a year, and it's just going up like a rocket. We have lots of meetings about climate change. We like to talk about it, but we haven't made any appreciable impact on emissions. Um, so let's say we had a kind of clean, green revolution that drove emissions down towards zero over one human lifetime which <clears throat> if we want a stable climate, we ought to do and we can do. So let's say we do that, great thing. We might even have a super clean green revolution and drive emissions under zero. It's completely possible to do that. Uh, we can talk about how we might do that and then that would actually have some, some, some negative emissions in it al along with driving emissions to zero. That's all good, but it's worth thinking about what this means to the climate because climate does not respond directly to the day-to-day -day emissions of carbon dioxide. It responds to the accumulation of that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over decades to millennia. Carbon dioxide, by some measures, lasts as long in the atmosphere as, as nuclear waste. You look at the difference between waste one year from, from release from a reactor to 1,000 years out, the radioactivity is down by a factor of 1,000. Emit carbon dioxide as we've been doing by extracting fossil fuels from the ground and burning them. If you emit that with an exponentially increasing rate and then suddenly stop, a thousand years later, you've still got roughly half the warming you had at the peak. So it's a very long problem this way. So what this shows you is not the emissions per year, but it shows you a measure of the climate risk, measured in a thing called radiative forcing, which is how we like to think about it. And the key point here is that the business as usual is obvious. The blue curve is what happens if we bring emissions to zero, corresponding to the blue curve on the previous plot. All that bringing emissions to zero does is it stops making the problem worse, which is a big deal, but that's what it does. It doesn't make it better. If you want to start making the problem gradually better, the green curve, which corresponds to us taking some CO2 out of the air, does that. But it's slow. It's inherently a very slow process. That's why these are drawn out to 2200. So a common view about solar geoengineering is that we do it in order to compensate for all of the CO2-induced climate change, so we make it go away, and we keep happily emitting CO2 forever. That's a terrible idea. And if that's what solar geoengineering is, I don't want any part of it. The, the question is, are there more reasonable scenarios for its use? One other common statement that's made is once we do it at all, we have to keep doing it forever, for 10 millennia. So that's the only way it's useful. No. 
Let's say we did it in a way like I've shown here, where we gradually ramp it up over a century and then ramp it back down. The amount of this turning down the sun, this offsetting of the climate impact of the accumulated greenhouse gases that we offset by this deliberate introduction of some fancy particles. I'll show you some ideas about that later. Fancy particles say into the stratosphere. So the net effect of that offsetting is that you slow down the rate of change. That's useful. A whole lot of the environmental risks, not all, but a significant part of the environmental risks happen from rate of change. So even if you just do this minimal thing, it's absolutely true that you do nothing to improve the climate in 2200 under this scenario. It's just as bad as it would have been if you hadn't done solar geoengineering. But what you have done is make everything happen more slowly. And that's a benefit. It gives plants and animals more time to adapt. It gives us more chance to, to uh, 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 deal with the problem in various ways. So there's a core benefit even there. Now, that scenario kind of assumed that our knowledge of the world and uh, our values and political system stays constant. That's not likely. So you can draw lots of these pictures, it's fun to draw them, but maybe in 2050 we find that Greenland really is going to collapse. Or maybe it's not new science, we don't find out that the climate problem is worse than we thought, but maybe we have a kind of social revolutionary change in values that say we care much more uh, than, than many of us seem to now, about really reducing the, the climate footprint of humanity. So whatever it is, we might change what we're doing. And if we do that, we could do something more quick. So this would be some scenario where we do a lot more geoengineering and then work harder to take CO2 out of the air. And then you have some kind of geoengineering wedge, you might call it. And, and that goes on for sort of 200, 300 years, not 10,000 years, a few long human lifetimes. That's the kind of commitment we're talking about. But it's a commitment that we're talking about with carbon dioxide no matter what. What is new and different here is this gives you a chance to substantially reduce the climate risks and the climate impacts both to humans, to vulnerable humans, and to ecosystems over a single human lifetime. But not a week. None of this is a one-week problem. It's a slow problem. In, in a scenario like this, you first have peak temperatures. The peak temperatures happen uh, at roughly the peak of this so-called radiative forcing, the, the amount we're pushing the climate from the combined effects of CO2 pushing it warm and, and, and the geoengineering effect pushing it cold. And then you have later peak carbon, the peak emissions point, and then the peak geoengineering point after that. That's kind of deep for these scenarios. So um, in thinking about the scenarios, I've come to think about three key things. One is that I think we want to think about this as being temporary. We don't want to commit to do this for 10,000 years because I can't even begin to think that far in advance. But we can think 100 years in advance. Some people who are skeptics of this say, oh, humanity can't possibly do anything for 100 years. But we've had transatlantic telecommunications for more than 100 years. We've had electric power systems for more than 100 years. Humanity actually does have some ability, even through big wars, to, to manage to do things in a sustained way. And I think there's reason to believe that if we want to, we could do better. Second thing is that it needs to be responsive, and third, moderate. I'm going to take responsive a little later in this talk, but let me talk about what I mean by moderate. As I said, much of the work that's been done on this topic assumes that, that we use geoengineering to do all the work, 
to do, compensate for all the climate risks that you can do of, of the CO2 in the atmosphere. And I think that's, um, I don't know a polite way to say it, it's nuts, but it's in fact the basis of most of the work on this topic. And let me try and show you why it's nuts. So let's say that you can adjust the amount of solar geoengineering, which in this case is, is shown by how much you turn down the sun, hypothetically in percents. So as you begin to do that, there's some benefit you get from the reduced climate changes on the ground, reduced change in temperature, reduced changes in precipitation, re reduction in ice sheets melting, for example. Those are all the benefits are doing that. The benefits, of course, are reduced harms. It's masking like a Band-Aid the harm that's come from the accumulated greenhouse gases over the, the centuries of human uh, industrial civilization. Now, it's clear that if you turn up this, eventually things start getting worse. The benefits go away. Indeed, just to set the scale here, to give you a sense of how big the leverage is, uh, uh, climate models suggest, and not just climate models, but sort of basic geophysical theory, that if you, um, if you turn down the sun by sort of 8% for a century, you freeze the oceans to the equator, as happened probably in the Neoproterozoic, um, a chunk of a billion years ago, and that would extinguish all life on land except the deep ocean. And that, that happened in Earth history, not because somebody was messing with the climate, but, but that has happened. And that gives you a sense of the kind of extraordinary and, and frightening power that humanity is gradually developing over the natural world. And I don't celebrate that, but I don't think we should, uh, we will, I don't think we'll make good decisions if we pretend that we don't have it. That's a power that we're developing, not because we set out to do it, but largely for other reasons, but it's a real power and a frightening one. In any case, forget that kind of crazy scenario for a second. These are, these are the, the, the way the benefits look, and then the risks, the damages. So there are all sorts of side effects. I'll get to them in a second, but, but if you put sulfuric acid in the stratosphere, for example, you could deplete stratospheric ozone. In fact, that's a topic I work on a bunch. I'll show you a little bit on that later. Whole bunch of risks and damages. In general, the risks get worse pretty quickly as you do more of it. So if you ask yourself uh, uh, how much you should do, uh, it's very unlikely that the amount you should do is where the, you, you choose the peak benefits. It's much more likely that you choose somewhere down, lower down where you get quite a lot of benefit and not so much risk. And there's another, I think, sort of political reason to think about using solar geoengineering to, in a moderate way to only deal with some of the climate risk because we want there to be a strong political rationale for and benefit for continuing to cut emissions. So indeed, one of the specific scenarios I'll show you in a second is that we use this technology to cut in half the rate of, of climate change, not to cut to zero, to cut in half. In any case, that's the kind of core argument about, about moderation. So temporary, responsive, and, and moderate. In, in a word that, that Stuart's gesture for this, patient, not a quick fix, not a magic fix at all something that helps us to moderate the damages. So I've given you a very uh, 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 sort of generic version of this. Here's something that gets a little bit more specific. You could suppose that the goal is to reduce the rate of climate change by half starting in 2020. From what we can tell, this is technically an achievable goal. Do I really think this will happen politically? No, I think it's very unlikely. But I think it's credible that one could do that and have time to do appropriate checking of the risks, given the fact that, that the rate at which 
you grow the amount of genome engineering that's very slow. So if you start in 2020, even by 2040, you're actually doing a remarkably small amount. Um, the method, the most basic method that we understand the best is this, this idea of putting sulfuric acid in the stratosphere. I'll, I'll show you in a minute that there's other things we could do that might be less risky, but we don't know them so well. Um, to do that, you'd have to start a really intensive scientific program now, and technical program, and also a program to understand how we regulate this technology. Right now, I think the most important thing to do is to um, break the kind of uh, inbred nature of this debate. There's been a quite small number of people working on this technology, and I think there's a real risk of groupthink that I am part of, and I think if we want the larger public to take this seriously, if we want to make decisions that affect the whole planet, we have to break that. We have to have a much wider scientific uh, engagement with how this works and doesn't. I've given you something specific about the technologies to do it. We've actually commissioned some studies to understand how to do it. And the frightening thing is that it's fantastically cheap. You can do this for a cost that's of order a billion a year, which sounds like a lot, but the costs of climate damages are a trillion a year by mid-century. The costs of cutting emissions are a trillion a year. Those are the kind of numbers that we're talking about. And so uh, numbers like a billion are, are tiny. That doesn't mean that we should do it just because it's cheap. It means, and I'll come back to this again and again, it's a risk-to-risk -risk decision. There are risks of doing it, there are risks of not doing it, but it's not the cost of doing it that will be the issue. It also raises the possibility of unilateral action. So, so even potentially small states could do it. So there are lots of ways in which having it be cheap is bad, but it does appear to be a fact. So just for the record, you can go find a paper that says some of this, and this is a relatively plain language paper, but still somewhat technical, it came out yesterday. So um, next I wanna talk about efficacy, about how well this thing could work. I haven't said anything about that yet, and it's really one of the, if there's one technical part of this presentation I want you to, to, to hear, to take away from, it's this. So what do I mean by efficacy? So it's useful to think about two completely different sort of aspects of this. One is, if you um, turn up the amount of carbon dioxide as we've been doing as humanity, you warm up the planet and make all sorts of other changes. Not just warming, you make it wetter in some places, drier in others, you can potentially make the big ice sheets melt, et cetera. Climate change is a complicated, multifaceted thing. It's not just temperature. It's clear that if you turn down the sun, you obviously don't really turn down the sun, but reflect away a little more sunlight to have the effect of turning down the sun. Climate modelers can turn down the sun by adjusting one constant in their model. If you do that, it's obvious that you can force the global surface temperatures back to pre-industrial if you wanted to, in theory. But that doesn't mean that the climate comes back to pre-industrial. The question is, does this do anything meaningful for the climate? Because the climate is this complicated, multifaceted thing. So this question of efficacy is, in theory, if you could, and we can talk about whether you can or not, if you could reflect away some sunlight, will you meaningfully reduce actual climate risk we care about? You know, like risk that, us, that, that places will get inundated by salt water, risk that high temperatures will damage crops and make it harder for, for some of the more vulnerable in the world to feed themselves. Those are the risks we actually want to address. And the question is, does this address it? And then any specific way that we go about doing this, like sulfates in the stratosphere, but there's a bunch of other ways, uh, making a certain kind of marine cloud brighter might work. There's other things other than sulfates in the stratosphere we'll get to in a second. Um, those, those, there are specific risks that are contingent on the way we do it. So 
let me get to efficacy for a second. And I'm going to show you a vector diagram. Some of you will have seen this back in school, some not. Uh, I'll talk you through it. Uh, so climate models are linear. So if, if, you, if you double the amount of, of radiative forcing of CO2 in the atmosphere, you get kind of twice the response. Whether the real world is like that is not so clear. But, but it's pretty clear that models are like that. So models have lots of different places. Now, I'm being a little glib. There's actually some reasons to believe that in some respects those models are right. And after all, it's precisely those models that are the central thing we use to understand what the risks are of accumulating CO2 in the atmosphere. So an obvious objection to all the stuff I'm saying about solar geoengineering is, um, how can you know anything? You've just got models. But they're the same models and same deep scientific understanding we have that tells us something about the risks of accumulated CO2 in the atmosphere. So let's say we have two regions. This could be San Francisco temperature and New York rainfall, just two variables in the model. If you, uh, as the amount of CO2 increases, both those things change in some ratio. I'm calling, you know, region B could be San Francisco temperature and region A is New York rainfall. Um, if you adjust the amount of solar geoengineering, the red line, you can, you can choose how long that red line is. Every two or three years, we get to choose how much sulfur we put in the atmosphere, every year more like it. But what you don't know is whether the lines oppose each other. So you can choose it like that, or maybe you can make the red line longer. This makes everything good for B, but leaves A too warm or too wet or whatever it happens to be. So this gets at the kind of trade-offs and inequality, the fact that this thing doesn't exactly do it. If, it. if the red arrow exactly opposed the blue arrow, then this would be perfect fix. But turning down the sun is not anti-CO2. One of the most obvious ways that is true is ocean acidification. So carbon, uh, 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 CO2 in the atmosphere doesn't just change the climate, it changes the geochemistry of the planet, it changes the way plants grow, changes uh, the way coral reefs will grow, and in fact will make them grow a lot less. That's ocean acidification. Solar geoengineering does almost nothing about that topic, very little directly. So that's some pictures. You could maybe think of some optimum. There's lots of economics you could do about the trade-offs. I and several other people have written lots of papers about how this is a very unequal thing and there's big trade-offs. So then we thought to actually check from models how unequal it was. And one way to get at the inequalities is to say simply, what is the angle between these two vectors? And and uh, you can do this in many dimensional space. In our paper, we did it in 44 dimensional space, big deal. But the bottom line is a measure of how well it works is what the angle is. If the angle was the way I drew it here, then solar geoengineering would do nothing to make climate better. It would just be a different climate forcing. CO2 would be pushing the planet this way and solar geoengineering pushing it another way and it wouldn't really be reducing any risk, it would just be making new risks. So the question is, what's the angle? And if you'd asked me to guess before we did this, my guess would have been like 45 degrees. It's useful, maybe it can sort of cut some of the risks by half or square root two, but that's about it. The actual result from models is much better than that. The actual angle is a few degrees, 10 degrees or something. So that for some variables, you can on a region by region basis for precipitation and temperature, you can reduce the changes in models by a lot, by like 80%. If there's one reason to take this idea seriously, this is it. There are lots of reasons this might not quite be true. There are lots of caveats. There are lots of political risks. But there's an underlying reason why this conversation is still going on. Why people reluctantly, and even though they in many ways hate the idea, are taking this idea seriously 
This is it. There really seems to be a prospect that there's an achievable way to substantially reduce the climate risk for most of the world in one lifetime. So let's talk a little bit more about risks and high technology. Um, I'll go a little bit faster here, maybe slightly less important. So I've talked about sulfur in the stratosphere. That's the obvious thing. I wanted to show you one piece of really new research, not even submitted for publication yet, and that is about alternative particles in the stratosphere. And it gives you a sense of the fact that the idea that people think is geoengineering is the idea that has been around actually for 30 or 40 years. The first high-quality report to the U.S. government that really reached the top decision-maker in the country about climate change was a report to President Johnson in 1965. I was two years old. And that report uh, uh, really got a lot of it right. It got the fundamental fact right, which is that if we keep digging fossil fuels from underground and putting them in the atmosphere, we will change the climate deeply. And the only suggestion it had for fixing it was what we now call solar geoengineering. So, so these ideas are not new, and the sulfate idea has been around for decades. But because there's been such a strong taboo against doing any research about this, because people have been so scared, with good reason, but I think ultimately not correctly, have been so scared to even talk about it, there's been no funded research, and scientists in the end just do what they're funded to do. So people put very little effort into thinking about new ways to do this. So I'll show you some new ways. The first paper about this actually is by a, quite a crowd, Edward Teller, no less, and others at Lawrence Livermore, have a really cute paper that shows you uh, how a bunch of solid particles, that is not a liquid droplet, I should say, why sulfuric acid? Actually, a droplet of water in the stratosphere reflects sunlight away fine almost as well as a droplet of sulfuric acid. The reason not to use water is water in the stratosphere evaporates very quickly. The only reason the acid is there is to prevent the water from evaporating. And it builds on what nature does because big volcanoes do this. That's how we know about it. Put sulfuric acid in the stratosphere and cool the climate down. So uh, uh, Teller and co. thought of better ways to do this. I thought of some other cool ways to have levitated disks. That are, and there's been a bunch of other papers about these solids. But all these papers have been very theoretical. They've been just assuming there were magic solids in the stratosphere. But in the real stratosphere, there's the natural sulfate. And the sulfate particles will hit the solids and coat them. And sulfate can destroy ozone. And if it's coated thinly on solids, it can destroy ozone even worse. And so we've built uh, a model that actually deals with the solid and liquid aerosols together and does the chemistry in a reasonable way. And here's some fancy slides I won't show you about ozone depletion. And now I'm going to get to trade-offs. So. This thing shows you the kind of one of the key trade-offs you want. Ideally, what you'd want is the ability to uh, uh, make radiative forcing and not make any loss of ozone. We don't want less ozone. Indeed, what you really want is the ability to make some radiative forcing, that's the solar geoengineering thing, and restore the ozone layer. Remember, the ozone layer has been damaged by the chlorofluorocarbons that we put in it, uh, uh, the ozone-depleting chemicals that we've uh, um, banned in the most successful environmental treaty of all time, the Montreal Protocol. But, but those things are still there, and they're still damaging the ozone layer, and we'd ideally like to restore it. And we actually have ways that that might be possible. But uh, the, the question is trade-offs. So the standard sulfur scheme that people have written about forever, uh, 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 if you want to do some amount, say 2 watts per square meter, which is the uh, uh, amount people talk about, for solar geoengineering, you end up depleting, in our model, which actually is worse for ozone than most of them, we deplete the, the overall ozone by 10%, which is quite a bit. Um, 
So we fooled around with new particles. This is a, a, a lumina, which is you know, maybe better in some ways, but these were small lumina particles, and they're terrible. They don't really do anything for, for cooling the planet down, and they're great at destroying ozone. So that's an example that didn't work. Um, but I thought, you've got to show the examples that didn't, didn't work. This is slightly bigger alumina particles. These are um, uh, much bigger alumina particles. And we've also been playing with diamond, which is a little better because it doesn't heat the stratosphere, it turns out. Uh, and the bottom line is, these new particles, even counting all the ozone chemistry and now doing a bunch of stuff people haven't done before, look like you can get the same amount of, of uh, turning down the sun effect with about half as much ozone loss, which is certainly better, although you'd like to do better still. I just want to give you a sense of sort of new ideas. Uh, uh, you don't need to read all the details here, but the key thing is that what, would what we'd like to do is find safe and testable ways to put uh, something, say, in the stratosphere that would reflect away this kind of half of 1% or 1% of sunlight. And ideally, you'd like it not to deplete ozone. You'd like it not to... Um, uh, uh, make much diffuse light, which is a problem with sulfates. You'd like it not to heat the lower stratosphere, which is a problem because it could get more water in the lower stratosphere, which causes all sorts of problems itself. And, you know, there's evidence that we could achieve all of those. But it's a kind of... The advantage of sulfur is the devil we know. So nature does that. And that also gives us a lot of confidence beyond models. Uh, an obvious question is, you know, why should we trust you, long-haired nutjobs, you've built all these models in your lab, how do you know anything? And I think that's a wise point of view. <laughs> uh, one of the things that's good about the sulfuric acid scheme is we have experience from nature. So if you look at the suggestions that I and others have made about how we might gradually do solar geoengineering, even after 50 years of cutting the, the global rate of climate change roughly in half, the amount of sulfur we put in the stratosphere this year would be about one million tons. Is that a big or small number? It means nothing if I just say that to you, probably. But uh, Mount Pinatubo eruption, one of the volcanoes that put a lot of sulfur in the stratosphere and cooled the climate, put eight million tons in one year. So we'd be about an eighth of that, and that means that we have a lot of kind of empirical confidence from the observations of Pinatubo that the results would not be disastrous. There's not some kind of unknown unknown that's huge that's out there to get us because nature's actually put much more than that. Whereas with diamond particles, they look better in theory, but maybe there's something we're not thinking about. And the question is, how could you actually go test? Um, I and, and colleagues at Harvard who've uh, done a lot of the pioneering work actually understanding the chemistry of the ozone hole have built instruments that we've flown on balloons and high altitude aircraft to measure <coughs> the ozone chemistry. And we've now been thinking about and proposing, but not doing yet, experiments that would uh, do this with sulfuric acid particles or other particles and would measure some of these key um, uh, characteristics of how much things we might put in the stratosphere would, say, cause ozone loss. <clears throat> A common statement about this is you can't test anything about geoengineering unless you test it at full scale. That's nonsense. You can't test everything, but you can test a lot. The scale of this experiment is to release about 100 grams of sulfate. So that's about as much as a commercial aircraft does in one minute of flight. So this experiment may or may not be useful. It may, not make, may or may not be cost effective. You may or may not think it should be done. But it'd be very hard to argue that it's spectacularly risky if it's putting 100 grams of sulfur in the stratosphere. This gives you some sense of, of, of a pathway forward. 
So if one actually wanted to have a sustained program to do this, you wouldn't just decide to turn on the switch. Indeed, here's the sort of simplest version of this statement. If you gave me a choice to do um, solar geoengineering at full scale or to abandon it forever, I would choose abandon it forever. The only way this makes sense is if you gradually work your way up, gradually work your way up through a series of tests and experiments that are, that are done in a sort of scientifically open fashion around the world, and then by gradually, if, if you decide to go further, by gradually ramping up the amount that you put in and observing as you go. We don't predict things very well in advance. We do a good job if we learn as we go. So now, I want to say a little bit about control and understanding. I haven't said so much about that. An obvious question is, um, how the heck can you control a system or engineer a system you don't understand? We'll never understand everything about the whole climate. It's a complex, unpredictable system. The answer is feedback. There are lots of systems that we routinely control from agriculture to human diseases to complicated machines where we don't understand everything about them, but we control them because we observe and modify as we go. And that's crucial to a kind of patient, slow approach to solar geoengineering. So <clears throat> this is a very geeky slide I first made actually for Steve Schneider's birthday 15 years ago and got us started on this whole line of research. So you all know that at some level, weather is chaotic. And this is what chaos means. I'll go through this quickly. And the assumption is you can't control chaotic systems. In fact, we routinely control chaotic systems. Indeed, we build deliberately chaotic systems because you can control them with small uh, control system inputs. For those of you who, who, who were, if that's all Greek, you could ignore it for a second. I'll go slightly, I'll, I'll have an even more geeky slide and then get a little more down to some uh, example that may make sense. So this is the more geeky slide about feedback, if you like. Um, bottom line is, we've tried doing feedback in climate models. And the key point is, we can assume that we don't know exactly how effective, say, putting sulfur in a stratosphere is. We can make the feedback loop be tuned up on one climate model and then apply it to another. So sort of trying to simulate the fact that we have a lot of ignorance. And we simulate all the uncertainty in the observation system and the fact that we, don't, we can't measure things very well. And yet, with appropriate feedback, we can still manage to do, in a model, uh, 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 some measure of control of, say, global precipitation or global temperature. So there's a problem if you don't do feedback right. And, and, and that gets to kind of one of the core risks, and I think the core risk of the interaction, and it's the difference between a kind of technocratic, calm approach and the real-world approach. So let me, let me give you an analogy first. Pilot-induced oscillations are what happens in aircraft when the, the pilot turn, when the aircraft turns one way, the pilot turns the other way to, to, to try and correct it, and then that correction is too slow, and he overcorrects and then corrects back. This happens, happened lots of times, but it happened in particular in American Airlines Flight 587. Uh, it was about a couple minutes into flight. Pilot went through a, um, uh, some turbulent air, and they corrected the rudder back and forth several times over 20 seconds, all the way from one side to the other. The rudder, rudders with your feet, sorry. And um, broke the uh, rudder off, and the airplane crashed. Um, 265 people killed or so. Um, there are several elements of this thing that I think are a very close analogy 
to the kind of problems we could have as a species trying to control something like solar geoengineering. So, so there's several, so it's worth explaining. Uh, the rudder pedals are made deliberately sticky so that um, pilots won't kind of accidentally bump the rudder pedals too easily. So it's a breakout force. You have to push it hard enough to get the thing moving. And, and so part of what happened is the pilot pushed one way, had to push hard, and then pushed the other way, pushed back and forth until, until he wiggled the plane back and forth and broke off the rudder. So the plane designers weren't dumb. That was, that was, there was a good reason to do that design. The pilot wasn't stupid. He was actually doing what he'd been trained to do, although that training didn't correctly match the aircraft dynamics. Um, and the pilot's reaction time was natural, but the result was a fatality. Everybody killed. And that message, I think, is powerful. So if we actually try to do climate engineering, the, the individual pieces can be right, but you can still have a disastrous outcome in the combination. And we've fooled around with simulating that. So this is the same simulation I showed you before, but now with a two-year time delay. You imagine politicians deciding how much geoengineering they should do and it takes them two years to make the decision. Then in the same model that I showed you before, we got a good answer. In this answer, we oscillate just the same way. So that's the, that's the, that's the bad answer. And these are, um, these are still kind of imagining you can have the whole world in a computer. Obviously, that's in many ways a kind of a technocratic and narrow vision. Um, on the flight over here, actually, I, I got to watch Earl Morris's great documentary on McNamara about Vietnam. And he's, sort of, he's a smart, self-critical uh, person, but largely fails to, to connect with the core reality of the decisions they made in, in Vietnam. And um, our, our models are useful, they give us tools, but these tools are deeply imperfect, and they can't predict many of the real surprises we've had in the political world, from you know, fall of the Soviet Union, rise of the internet, etc. Uncertainty is deep. So in the last section, I want to talk a little bit about fear as the obvious thing, and some optimism. So I think a central problem the central concern with this whole idea is best expressed with this cartoon. And you know, the, the punchline of these cartoons is always the guy right at the very bottom. So, you know, so the search for breakthrough technology, and it's a time machine that sets us back 50 years when we should have uh, put a price on carbon, and the little guy at the bottom says, we better hurry. And the other guy says, no, no, that's the great thing about a time machine. You don't have to hurry. <laughs> and, and that is part of the gotcha with this geoengineering, is the idea that it's this kind of addictive idea that it allows you to, in some ways, go back in time, in the sense that as we burn more fossil fuels, we just make the climate worse, and this allows you to go back imperfectly a little bit in time, and that tempts you to be more lazy about making the climate worse. That's really one of the central risks. So I showed you a version of this before. Again, this, this business as usual is, is a it's a, it's a collective hallucination. I mean, the, the, one of the dirty secrets of climate policy analysis is that it's easy to show big progress against business as usual uh, if, if you control the counterfactual business as usual. We, we have no way to know what it really is. So I just want to, it's really important to say that. Um, so anyway, that's business as usual. If you bring emissions to zero, you get something like this. If you bring emissions to zero more aggressively, more quickly, you have better climate policy, build more solar panels, more nuclear power plants, whatever, you do that. Working harder means losing less badly. Without geoengineering, all you get from climate policy is you lose less, you lose, you lose slower. 
And that's a hard message to sell. I, I'm no PR expert, but I think a fundamental thing that's hard about climate policy is that the, the main message has been one of despair and that if we work really hard, we'll be a little less despairing. I don't want it to sound like I'm saying geoengineering gets a magic solution. It does not. But it may get us a more soft landing in combination with cutting emissions, and that's a more helpful answer, and that's, that's the core piece. So first of all, this is the wedge that's conservation, efficiency, decarbonization, and maybe even carbon removal, and exactly how big that wedge is depends on where business as usual is, but the point is you must, in the end, bring emissions to zero if you want a stable climate. Nothing that I've told you about geoengineering changes that. You want a stable climate in the long run, got to bring emissions to zero. The only question is how quickly. Then, once you've done that, you've got the choice of how much you want to remove carbon, which is inherently a slow process because there's a lot of carbon. There's no magic quick fix to do that. And then you've got a choice of how much solar geoengineering you do, which could well be zero. But if you do it, you get to reduce the climate risk more quickly. And, and here's where I think there's a possibility of a more hopeful outcome. Not a perfect outcome, not a risk-free outcome, but a more hopeful outcome. Because this outcome gets you to be able to reduce climate risk substantially in one lifetime. And it commits you over a few lifetimes to, to a complicated balancing of geoengineering and carbon removal. That's not a great answer, but it's not like we have other choices. So here's what other people tend to say about this idea. <laughs> and I can find a lot worse. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but I want to close with thinking through, uh, I, there's, there's a lot worse out there. Go, go look. Maybe some of you think a lot worse. Um, so I want to close with kind of getting at some of the key uh, uh, underlying concerns. I think the biggest single concern is this idea of addiction that once you start the drug of offsetting climate risk, addiction is inevitable. And no matter how much we plan a sound strategy, the next generation will just mess it up by only doing geoengineering, doing nothing to cut emissions. I think in some ways that is my biggest fear, my fear of talking about this. Well, yes, but does that mean we'd be better concealing the fact that solar geoengineering might actually meaningfully reduce risks for people now living, which I think is a moral imperative? I don't think so. We've tried the just say no approach for both teen sex and drugs, and it doesn't work very well. Perhaps the best way to influence the future is to build the social and political and technical basis for a plausible strategy that actually gets us to a soft landing from climate. Not a perfect strategy, and not a strategy where whoever works on it now that whatever we think now, whatever I've showed you tonight, will certainly not be what we do over 100 years, but you still have to start with a coherent strategy. So I think that's the central concern is really this addiction concern. Oh, sorry, I didn't have an addiction up there. The second core one is, is the risks. Um, there are lots of technical risks. We can get to them more in questions, but the key thing to understand is that there's no risk-free choice here. The underlying question is, is the world a little bit safer with, say, 400 parts per million of CO2 in the air, what we have now, or with 400 million parts per million of CO2 in the air and a little bit of solar geoengineering? 
They're both risky. We don't have the choice to go back to zero magically. If we had built a civilization without carbon emissions, maybe we'd found nuclear power early or some magic solar system, we had no carbon emissions, and somebody suddenly found coal and said, oh, it's cheaper than our existing energy system. Yeah, it kills a million people a year, and it'll change the climate, but it's cheaper. And somebody else says, yeah, we could fix some of the problem by solar geoengineering. You lock such a person up as insane. But we can't magically stop emitting today. People's lives depend on it. We can stop pretty quickly if we want to, but we can't suddenly go back. So our actual choice today is risk of having the amount of CO2 we have or that plus geoengineering. And it's not obvious which is less risky. I'm not claiming I know for sure, but there are reasons to take seriously the idea that it's less risky, that we're somehow pushing the climate less hard, less radiative forcing in the words of the climate scientists, if we have some geoengineering. And that's the core trade-off. So yes, there are real risks about geoengineering, but it's not a free choice. It's a risk-risk choice. Politics is a central risk. Um, so there's some evidence the Chinese leadership is worried now about the gradual weakening of their monsoon strength. And one way they might increase that monsoon strength is to do one of those forms of geoengineering, the, the cloud whitening off their shores, which cools the ocean a little bit, and monsoons depend on the, the temperature contrast between land and ocean. Maybe that would make their monsoon better. I'm not saying it would. Maybe it makes the Indian monsoon worse, or the Indians think it does. So what then? You have two states, nuclear-armed states, and they're basically fighting like frat boys over where the thermostat should be set. And we have, not, not, not only do we not know what the right answer is as a species, we don't have any of the right mechanisms to settle disputes like that in place. And those political questions about how we control this in a deeply divided world are, I, I think, central concerns. So, yes, they are. What's my but? I think my but is that if you think about my colleagues at Harvard's Belfort Center who spent a lot of their careers thinking about the control of nuclear weapons or financial systems, that in some ways, solar geoengineering doesn't look that hard. It's hard, but we control lots of high-leverage, fast-acting things, and we don't do a great job, but we do it. And in many ways, this thing looks like the benefits are pretty evenly distributed, the costs are pretty low, and as a sort of social science political problem, you can make an argument that it's easier than many we already deal with. The big last one is that it's unnatural. As Bill McKibben put it, that, that doing this is in some way the end of nature. And I think that's valid, and we can come back to that a little bit more in questions. I, I have a, a last quote that I, I, I've used before on these. This is from uh, Tom Schelling, a Nobel Prize winner, a really thoughtful guy on, on this topic over decades. This is from the 1982 National Academy report. Another National Academy report on this topic came out just a few days ago. But this key thing, he says, is that once you get going, worrying about CO2 and develop the technology for modifying the climate, then that interest in modifying the climate may flourish whatever we do about CO2. And that gets to me at this core kind of end of nature concern, that even if my interest and the interest of many other people now developing this technology is in reducing environmental impacts, once you let this thing loose, people may decide that they want the environment different, that they want to optimize it in some different way. And I think that, I mean, the answer is we can't bind the future, but that is a very legitimate 
and concerning outcome. So back to a few pretty pictures uh, from that same trip in Antarctica. Um, it's common to see the idea of geoengineering as a sign of impatience, a product of impatience. Impatience with the hard labor of rebuilding the world's energy system to eliminate carbon emissions. Impatience with the difficulty of developing the social con rough consensus we need to spend the money to cut emissions. Um, impatience with global climate politics. The impatience of the kind of Silicon Valley capitalists who imagine that every problem can be easily fixed with a technological solution. So a standard view about geoengineering is that the reason people like, say, me take it seriously is we're impatient. And I think there's some element of truth in each of these critiques. The presence of a short-term palliative will distract us from the hard task of cutting emissions, or at least there's a real reason to be concerned that it is. But I think I've shown you that if you want to do this in any way, it's a hundred or a couple hundred year process. Doing it requires a kind of long patience in planetary management that is in fact novel and is more or less as hard as simply the task of cutting emissions. Patience is in fact part of the game if we're gonna do this seriously. Patience to experiment, patience to measure what happens, patience to adjust, patience to balance uh, the amount of solar geoengineering we do against the amount we cut emissions. Those are inherently slow choices. And I think the hopeful answer is that the combination of cutting emissions to zero, being able to make negative emissions to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, and doing some solar geoengineering gives us a pathway to a soft landing where we leave the natural world a little bit more the way we found it and have less impact on the poor and vulnerable now. And I think that's something that that is more that is more viable as a as a pathway forward that that excites people and that you can build a socially cohesive answer around. And to me, that is the underlying reason to be excited here. The the slogan that says let's lose more slowly is just not the right one. And we need to think about slogans, not, uh, many of you know there's a slogan called 350.org, the idea that we should, should have stopped uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the air at 350 parts per million. Well, I'd prefer 270.org, which is the pre-industrial, or zeroradioforcing.org. You can tell I'm not a PR person, but the idea is <laughs> why don't we aim as a species at restoration? Why don't we aim at bringing the climate back towards pre-industrial? And this gives us one of the key tools we need to do it. Thank you. Have a seat. While I get my sleeping <clears throat> legs back to wakefulness here. You mentioned uh, reducing carbon in the atmosphere a couple times, and uh, it's sort of in passing, because mostly even talking about solar radiation management. Um, say a little more about carbon capture, which you have a whole nother career in, as I understand. So yeah, so that's probably why I don't talk little. about it, is because of conflict of interest. Um, 
So there's, there's a lot of ways that you could make negative emissions or take CO2 out of the atmosphere. For example, you can grow biofuels, grow, grow wood or whatever, and burn it in a way that captures the CO2 and puts it underground, or you could just bury the biofuels. You could add alkalinity to the ocean. Basically, CO2 is a weak acid. You could add a base to the ocean, which is the long-term thing that the environment wants to do naturally. I've so never, we, never heard ocean acidification being somehow fixed, because it's always the, oh. you know, the, the sort of horrible side effect <clears throat> of you're doing soil radiation management and the aerosols in the stratosphere is that it doesn't do anything about acidification. Are you saying fixed so, acidification? So CO, if, from, the, from the geochemical perspective, forget humans, CO2 mm -hmm. comes out, and what it does is it warms the climate up, it accelerates weathering, you know, the weathering of rocks, mm -hmm. washes them down towards the ocean, mm -hmm. and those rocks include some, some bases that neutralize the acid and the CO2, and that's the long-run way that the environment would get rid of it anyway. Left to itself, that process is, well, there's several timescales, but runs to millions of years. Mm -hmm. um, but there are plenty of methods that we know about today that would allow you to accelerate them. I run a little startup company that works on direct capture of CO2 from atmosphere in an industrial process. We think about that mostly for low carbon fuels. In the stack of uh, no, plants or Direct just capture from the atmosphere as a way to enable ultra low carbon fuels is what we're doing. 400 parts per million is pretty skinny yeah, that's uh, stuff true, to pull out. But the energy cost is logarithmic, so it's not okay. so bad as you think. Wow. But, but I think the key point is there are enough ways to do it, and enough of those ways are actually things that we know how to do at industrial scale today, that mm -hmm. I think you could be certain that barring like civilizational collapse, mm -hmm. there are ways we could patiently remove CO2 from the atmosphere over centuries. But there's no way to remove it all really quickly right. because of the immense volumes. George Dyson asks, um, what about controllable sky sails or mirrors rather than uncontrollable aerosols? Um, I actually started out in this wacky business in 89, no, a little after that, when, when there was a, an earlier National Academy report that proposed a kind of sky sail and didn't calculate the solar wind forces and didn't notice all those sails we'd blown out of orbit. And so, so it certainly is possible, but you have to think hard. As you make the sails very light, as some of you know, there's a thing called a solar sail. You make them very light as you want to for solar sailing, and they get blown quickly out of orbit. And so if you wanted to do it, you have to think about how to do them in a stable orbit. And there are solutions to that, but they're not easy. I think you have to get space travel cheap first. And it's not obvious that aerosols in the stratosphere are such a bad thing, so I'm mm. focused on that. But I'm perfectly happy with more ideas. Um, Jim Mason asked what about the high sulfur coming out of jet fuel contrails and things like that. And I guess I would ask the, the sulfur dioxide that's you know, making it hard to see down the street in places like uh, Beijing. Um, burning coal has put a whole lot of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere, not so much in the stratosphere, I guess. How do you compare uh, aerosols in the atmosphere versus the stratosphere? So we put about 50 million tons of sulfur in the lower atmosphere each year. It kills about two, or th two million people a year, let's say. This is from burning principally coal mm -hmm. and, and some oils and so on. So it's a devastating thing. And, and one of the great environmental successes, and I mean, if you're going to have one environmental celebration in the last couple of years, is that China, the world has already turned the corner, but a few years ago, China turned the corner as began mm -hmm. to drive its sulfur emissions down. That's a great thing for the health of people in Beijing. 
But it's complicated because actually that sulfur in the lower atmosphere is masking some mm -hmm. of the climate warming from CO2. So is this the global dimming or something? Yeah. I mean, in a way, nature left a trap for us by having fossil fuels have both carbon and sulfur in them. Because mm -hmm. we happily burn them, that burning releases CO2, which in the long run drives climate warming. <clears throat> but that's a long-term thing. The CO2 stays for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Sulfur just stays in the atmosphere when you burn it in the lower atmosphere for a week or two. But the problem is if we burn it continuously, a bunch of the warming, mm -hmm. potential warming from the CO2 in the air is masked by the sulfur cooling. And so it, it, the drug addiction analogy is very close. If we mm -hmm. suddenly stop, we're going to see even more warming than we see today. So I remember back when, this is when Paul Crutzen sort of came out for geoengineering uh, because he was noticing we were gradually but steadily cleaning up the the uh, emissions in the atmosphere and that that was going to lead to more solar coming in and staying around <laughs> so you know what what's the nature of the offset so one of the obvious ways to if you sort of most salesmanship way to say you should do solar geoengineering in the near term uh -huh. is to say let's not do any added aerosol geoengineering Mm -hmm. So if the current aerosols are, let's say, reflecting one watt per square meter, mm -hmm. we should take them out of the lower atmosphere where they're killing two million people a year, right. put a much smaller amount, because you need much less in the stratosphere, so maybe 50 times smaller amount of sulfur in the stratosphere. One fiftieth in the stratosphere has the effect Round of numbers, yes. 50 times that in the Round atmosphere. And, and the health impacts are about 30 times less, it turns out, per ton. So, so so if you wanted to just leave everything the same, no mm -hmm. change in the climate forcing mm -hmm. that we have now, but reduce the deaths uh, uh, from sulfur, that would be one argument for doing geoengineering. Okay, how bad does it get? And this is, I guess, back to Crutzen's worry. If we clean up the atmosphere, but don't put something balancing in the stratosphere, how, how, how much are we accelerating our heating problem? Uh, if, you, if we remove everything, it, it, it makes it sort of a factor of two worse round numbers. That is roughly half of the warming signature of the long-lived greenhouse gases is now canceled out by these reflectors. Okay, what are the chemical effects? Um, uh, sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere killing all these people. Uh, is the stuff in the stratosphere going to be killing some number of people that are going to be so sort we of just, sacrificed? It, it's, a, it's an <laughs> obvious concern, and, and especially, actually, if you think about it sort of morally, that the... the moral consequences of action as opposed to inaction, I think, are different. They're different mm -hmm. in most religions and in law. So as I've started to work on this topic, I've started to scratch my head about what would be the health consequences of putting sulfur in the stratosphere. We've actually just finished a big three-year-long study, you have a paper mm -hmm. under review on this topic. Mm -hmm. And the answer was surprising, but the bottom line answer is the direct impacts of the sulfur you put in the stratosphere are tiny, that kind of 30 to one number. Mm -hmm. But there's all these indirect effects, some good, some bad, mm -hmm. that just come from changing the climate. Indirect effects on human health. Jill Tarter, got quite an audience here, uh, says you talked about geosolar engineering. What are other types of geoengineering out there? And is there feedback possible for those as well? I mean, there's uh, the ones about sort of atomizing seawater and maybe enhancing uh, <clears throat> Stratus, uh, stratus clouds over the ocean and things yeah, that's like that. Right. So, so there's, a whole, there's a whole bunch of ways that one might change the reflectivity of the planet from mm -hmm. different compounds in the stratosphere to this idea of yeah, making certain kinds of marine clouds. There's evidence that we mm -hmm. could make them whiter by putting, say, fine mm -hmm. sea salt aerosol in. There are several other ideas as well. I think 
it's easy to geek out on the subtle differences between them. The, the big picture is all these ideas are kind of similar. They're all fundamentally about masking. They're all about aerosols. They're all imperfect. They're all quick. The term albedo adjustment is starting to be used or something like that. Albedo being albedo reflectivity. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And that's... One thing I sort of like about that is it puts you outside the Earth looking back, the, you know, the reflectance exactly. of the Earth. Let's make it a little brighter in terms of sunlight. Um, do you have a... Where, where's your comfort with I, terminology these days? I, I, geoengineering is an ugly word, but I think in some ways that's a good thing. And I think mm. it's not that... I, I don't want to try and change the wording because then it, for lots of reasons, I think it's hard to do. Um, Tony Bernhardt asks, do you assume uniform dispersal of the aerosols over the Earth? And um, what if you started, say, just in the Arctic, is once described as sort of a closed system compared to the rest of the planet? Uh, uh, no, we don't hmm? assume uniform. And we've begun to do hmm. numerical experiments looking at, at changing distributions of aerosols to get um, to do some tuning of the radiative forcing radio forcing is sort of the amount we're pushing in the climate. Mm -hmm. And there certainly are ways in which you could tune things to try and emphasize the specific effect. So as you saw, I travel a lot in the Arctic. I think a lot about the Arctic sea ice. Mm. And, and there are ways you could adjust it to try and get more effect on Arctic sea ice and relatively less change to climates in the, in the mid-latitudes. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think in general, for pretty obvious political reasons, I think the simplest solution is the one where you just try and work on the whole climate a very small amount. And the, you know, the incremental testing, the 100 grams of sulfur, that's going to give you enough data, you think, to start getting feedback on what's working and not working? For some of the key chemistry, yes. And that's mm -hmm. because chemistry in the stratosphere is kind of fundamentally local. All the, the, the big chemicals that destroy ozone, mm -hmm. they all have a strong daily cycle. They actually die, the so-called radicals are all gone in the night. They mm -hmm. get created in the day. And so if you just get two diurnal cycles of the key chemicals, you learn a lot. You don't learn everything, but you learn mm -hmm. a lot. Um, uh, I think there's a whole host of these tests you could do that are small that allow you to kind of learn your way up. Mm -hmm. But it's, of course, true that none of these things tell you everything you want to know. And, and no matter how much you test and how much you study, there will be deep uncertainties about exactly what the effects are. How much do you think one needs to do before you get an actual surface temperature feedback? Depends how, depends how heavy a hammer you use, so to speak. Yeah, of course. So if you did this slow ramp that I proposed, mm -hmm. then if feedback, I mean, you don't really see effects you could measure in global surface temperature for more than a decade or two. Mm -hmm. Quite a long time. But I don't have there. But, but I think this is important to say. But if there were, the thing we're worried about is not that it won't be perfect at global surface temperature. We're worried about some unknown unknown, mm -hmm. some unusual feedback in the stratosphere that makes somehow the ozone loss much worse or puts more water in the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And some of that we can detect with much higher signal to noise. That is, we could detect that much earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's one of the reasons to think about a slow monitored uh, deployment. And what's your sense of the, the, one of the great things about this is, is in a sense the whole world is now understanding increasingly that everybody's, 
dealing with this global problem. It is a global problem, and it's a global problem in a way unlike, the, say, the Cold War, the nuclear confrontation, where it was sort of solved by uh, people in secret rooms and just a couple of governments. Yeah. This has to be <laughs> solved by basically everybody, uh, or enough of everybody yeah. that it can make a difference. And um, so one of the things that people say is, well, you can't really do any of this until everybody agrees to do it. Is that the case? No. Uh, in some ways, we wish it was the case. A couple comments. First of all, why have we made so little progress on climate? Mm -hmm. As I said, the core science has been known for decades. An obvious answer is that various interests, including corporate interests from the fossil fuel companies, want to, to stop it. And they certainly have acted in ugly ways to frustrate action. But that can't be a sufficient explanation because all sorts of other environmental pollutants, air and water, lead, mercury, DDT, we've made real progress on um, mm -hmm. in the last 50 years, mm -hmm. in the, especially the, the more rich parts of the world. Real progress, in some cases, really turned the corner, not made the problem go away, but made it get a lot less bad, mm -hmm. even while we've had economic growth. And in all those cases, there was opposition and politics and uncertainty about the science and false uncertainty about the science. Hmm. So why have we made progress in so many things like that and not climate? I start this whole class on environmental politics at Harvard on that topic. And I think the reason is the way that climate is this collective action problem at global scale. Mm -hmm. And if I spend money, as I did, in my house to insulate it better, mm -hmm. I get some benefit from that. But the, the climate benefits go globally and 100 or 200 years out. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the core asymmetry that makes it so hard to get a deal on climate. And that, that won't go away. Mm -hmm. Here's one of uh, several questions from Andrew Marshall. You've said that uh, solar radiation management involves annual spraying of 20,000 tons of sulfuric acid into the stratosphere. Uh, you said atmosphere. You have confirmed this will cause 10,000 deaths annually. Do you believe this is an acceptable death rate? So no, I didn't say that 20, mm -hmm. con confusing. <laughs> 20,000 tons doesn't do 10,000 deaths, uh, mm -hmm. uh, not close. Um, the ratio of, of if you put a ton of sulfur in the atmosphere with a current distribution of combustion sources compared to putting a ton into the stratosphere, the ratio of the direct health impacts is about 30 to one. Mm -hmm. So it's about 30 times less dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think there are real moral consequences of that risk that are serious. Of course, the only reason to do this is if we expect overall it's healthy. Overall, it, it, mm -hmm. it reduces risk to people, including risks of, say, uh, heat waves. So, mm -hmm. so, but there are trade-offs that are hard. Um, one of the things when I started looking at geoengineering, uh, a term that came up as a, a, a sort of a scare term was um, unilateral geoengineering. You know, what if rich person, uh, what if uh, pissed off nation or worried nation uh, just goes ahead and starts doing it? Is that a, what do you think of that? Um, what, what, what did your political course teach about yeah, that? So, so first of all, I'd say, I'd say rich person I don't think is credible for the following reason, that in the end, if, if, if there was a rich person in your, if we're two countries, and there's a mm -hmm. rich person in your country who begins to do it, mm -hmm. and you say, oh, it's not my country, it's just a citizen of my country who felt like doing it. Mm -hmm. I say, I regard the actions of any mm -hmm. citizen in your state that affect my state as 
your responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a way in which this quickly becomes de facto state action, mm-hmm. however it started. So I think that sort of individual isn't the issue. But there certainly is an issue with, with individual states doing it. Okay. And you can look at that as a good or bad thing depending on the outcome. If you imagine a kind of sudden decision by a non-democracy with no mm-hmm. consultation, then it looks awful. Mm-hmm. If you imagine a coalition of a few states that maybe really span the world with some from the poor south and some from the rich US, north. China, and India. Yeah, and they do it slowly, and it's mm. completely open, and they do it after years of testing, mm-hmm. and they appoint an international commission that's quite representative to mm-hmm. oversee it, then the answer might be that that's not a bad outcome. And that some other countries would say, we deplore this action, that's what they say publicly, and privately they say, we're glad somebody's doing this is reducing <laughs> the climate risk, and we can blame them. <laughs> Damon asks, is there an antidote to uh, H2SO4 just in case something wasn't captured in the models? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, generally, what's the antidote situation here? So, the, I, I mean, yeah, the, sulfur, the, the sulfur, whatever you put in the, in the stratosphere gets there, is it going to stay there for a long time? A couple of years, a year, a year and a half. So, I mean, for sulfur, the direct health effects, I think mm-hmm. that that it's very hard to imagine there's some giant unknown unknown because it's what we're already doing at huge scales. If we're putting in 50 million tons now, we're talking mm-hmm. about one more. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see there's some unexpected awful health effect. I think the unexpected awful effects are stratospheric chemistry. Uh, just on l- the lingering aspect, is uh, aerosols linger longer in the atmosphere or stratosphere, or uh, how do they compare? Uh, uh, if you, in the lower atmosphere, aerosols are washed out by rain on a time scale of about a week. Okay. So some of China's pollution makes it here across the Pacific, but not that much. So there, but there are, and I know people who've tried to calculate it, there are, China, there, there are Americans yeah. who die because of Chinese pollution and there are Europeans who die because of American pollution. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but, but in the stratosphere, sulfur lasts for a year or two. And, and I think that's actually a good amount of time. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, this is back to this pilot-induced oscillation. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the ways I thought about it is, let's say it's a design problem. Let's say you're designing a box that's the magic knob for adjusting it. Mm-hmm. How, how, how quickly should that knob respond? If, if you're adjusting Yeah, this, you'll get pilot oscillation exactly. if you have the wrong so, leg, so, right? So if you're going to give that box to some uh, a very wise, calm group of, of <laughs> rational individuals selected from across cultures and nations who right. always put their feet up and think wisely before they act. They're all older then the than 60. Is, and, yeah, then the answer is you give them a, a thing that acts very quickly because they might want to for some reason, but they'll make the wise choices. Okay? But if you're actually going to give this box to real political class today, mm-hmm. you, you might not want it to act too quickly because maybe people will sort of accidentally have a drunken fight and adjust it fast. Mm-hmm. I'm being glib, but, mm-hmm. but I think there's a genuine issue of the fact that we do live in a divided multipolar world and it's dangerous to develop technologies that react too quickly. And all else equal, you want this thing to be slow moving, mm-hmm. partly because you want to average out the quick changes of, of sort of the political mood at the moment. A couple questions about the models. Um, models were surprised by the r- rapid melting in the Arctic. Uh, it seems like the models were surprised by the relative plateauing of surface temperatures increase in the last 12 or so years. Um, what's your sense of uh, what, what 
the deeper lessons are there. And, you know, what do you think about this current plateauing? Is that deep or uh, a perturbation, uh, noise? Well, well, one way to measure how uncertain the models are is what we call the range in climate sensitivity and how mm -hmm. much the climate changes if we double CO2. Mm -hmm. The first big estimate was made in 1979 by the Charney Commission and said 1.5 to 4.5 degrees C for a doubling. And what's amazing is we haven't narrowed that range very much right. since 79, which is a long time ago. Mm -hmm. and, and I think yeah. what we found is that while we've learned a huge amount about all these specific huge stacks of scientific papers, mm -hmm. and the models are in many respects much better than they were in 1979. I mean, the first climate models that kind of had well, they have more data. Among yeah, others, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And uh, we actually can't predict with much higher accuracy the kind of biggest mm -hmm. single question, which is how much the climate reacts to a given mm -hmm. amount of CO2 in the air. And, and I think the reality is we're going to get there before mm -hmm. we know the answer. So were you surprised by this relative slowing of the heating that happened in yes, the last 12 years? Yes, but some of my colleagues are very worked up about it. I worked up in what way? Worked up... Uh, either that it has big political implications because it makes climate change seem less bad or that it shows some thing we really don't understand about the models. My sense is that or it's, it's good news. pretty Gives random noise, mm. and I don't read... You, think it's noise. you start out by saying, mm. as Steve Schneider said, that you don't learn yeah, much yeah, in yeah, a yeah. decade, and I think it's mostly noise. I'm not sure there's a lot of signal to pull out there, but, but I'm not an expert in that. Given that, if it, how many more years would the plateauing go on for you to decide with a signal, not noise, just out of curiosity. My intuitive answer would be 20 starts to worry me a lot more than 10. 20, okay, that's fair. But that's not, that's just a intuitive um, The ocean. Uh, all the people I talk to you, I talk to a lot of people about ocean stuff in relation to biology, and they're basically saying this is a great deep, dark mystery, which we are just beginning to get little pieces of understanding about. And this seems to apply also to what the sort of heat engine of the ocean actually is and how it works with currents and depth and all this kind of stuff. How big a black box is the ocean in these models? That is, how many surprises, and maybe including this plateauing, or not, I'm not sure, is the ocean less certain than, say, water vapor in the uh, in the atmosphere and stratosphere, which was a big question for a long time that seems to be getting sorted out. Is the ocean of that level of mystery or something worse? I think if you're talking about, if you're talking about predicting specific things in the ocean, obviously the ocean is, is mm. the big central piece, but if you're talking about predicting the, how much the climate will change in mm -hmm. the middle of the continents, mm -hmm. uh, uh, or even here, say 50 years out or 100 years out, I think the biggest uncertainties still really are the core uncertainties about clouds mm -hmm. and water vapor in the upper part of the tropics. Those are the biggest uncertainties that really drive a lot of this, this thing I just mentioned, this uncertainty in the climate sensitivity. Well, and, and the ocean part is a relatively small contributor over a century. Okay. I think the bigger uncertainties for climate impacts are... Mm. There's a big uncertainty about how much ice sheets melt deep uncertainty. Talking about albedo shift, right. Yeah. So what's your sense on the, the, what happens with the ice as time goes forward? I mean, you've just dropped in there, oh, uh, <laughs> Greenland uh, basically melts. Uh, so, so a lot of the conventional models all have a pretty slow response. Right. And, and uh, they, 
the, the main set of standard models showed that you got huge amount of ice sheet melting over a thousand years, but a pretty small amount over a hundred years. Mm -hmm. And the main way climate policies worked, which I think is nonsense in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I've dropped out of now, is they typically said they did everything for a hundred years. They effectively assumed that there was no value after a hundred years. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us actually intuitively feel there's a lot of value after a hundred years. Um, but in any case, the standard models all have ice sheets reacting very slowly, but there's increasing evidence that they can react quickly. We've seen observational evidence in Greenland of uh, uh, much faster outflows, say, of the, the glaciers that flow out of Disco Bay on mm -hmm. the West Greenland are flowing much faster. You can see that from satellite radar. And there's evidence that the surface has melted faster than we expected. And, and so if you... That's real uncertainty. And the extreme views of that suggest that we really might be wrong. You might be able to get substantial deglaciation in a century and a half or so, mm -hmm. and that would really be a big deal. You know, more than more than a meter sea level rise. But there are also thoughtful people who say more than a meter sea level rise in what kind of time frame? There are certainly sensible people who work on Greenland that think Greenland alone could get you a meter in, in a century, which in is a lot. A century. A century. And what's the acceleration that happens when uh, sea ice turns to sea, which... Uh, Zero. Well, I mean, you know, in terms of reflectance... Oh, oh yes. So, I mean, ice it's is... An ice cube is Ice is incredibly melts, reflective. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm told that uh, open seawater is about as absorbent as an asphalt parking lot or something. Um, yeah, the Arctic is melting fast, uh, especially summertime sea ice, as I think everybody's seen, has gone away quickly, and that's an example of a surprise. It's gone okay. away quicker than most models predict. And that becomes then an accelerator of the whole process, or not? Yeah, there's certainly mm. a feedback there. Mm. But, but if you think about geoengineering or cutting emissions, that's something which has less inertia. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of evidence that if we did some geoengineering or were able to bring emissions or concentrations down quickly, the sea ice itself responds fast because it only lives for a few years, whereas the glaciers, mm -hmm. the big ice sheets on Antarctica or Greenland, are a much slower process in a sense. Well, that's interesting. So one of the early signs of, quote, success with solar radiation management with sulfates in the atmosphere, or in the stratosphere, would be that the sea ice would, uh, in the winter, yeah, recommence its old range. And, and the small and the small glacier. So on that ski trip, actually, we were skiing along North Baffin Island, and the mm. topo maps are all based on 1950s air photos. Canada mm. doesn't, you know, we don't we don't go back and do that very often. Topo mm -hmm. maps in the high Arctic, and so the topo maps all have these glaciers, and we'd ski each day by a bunch of these big outflow glaciers from mm -hmm. from Greenland from uh, 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 North Baffin, and th those glaciers are all back many kilometers from mm -hmm. where they, they were. And it, it's quite something to see that. I mean, that trip was a, a, a recreational or therapeutic trip. It wasn't about science. Uh, uh, but you can't help looking at all those glaciers being melted that far back and really be stunned. Kevin Kelly asks, uh, does carbon sequestration not scale in comparison with sulfate shading? They're just completely different things. So the sulfate shading idea is something that is inherently temporary. It's, mm. it, it, it acts in the short term, year by year, but it does nothing. I mean, in a sense, they, they, um, cutting emissions or taking CO2 out of the air works on this long-term flywheel that's like this 100 mm -hmm. or 1,000-year mm -hmm. um, flywheel of the carbon content of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And 
in the end, if you don't manage the carbon content of the atmosphere, you don't have a safe climate. Mm -hmm. All the sulfate or whatever you do for solar geoengineering helps to mask some of the risk. Mm -hmm. And that, that could be good. There's a reason we have Band-Aids. Mm -hmm. but, but it operates fundamentally on a short time scale. Mm -hmm. So the good thing you can say is, I think it's fair to say the only way that we know about that you could substantially reduce the climate risk in one lifetime is solar geoengineering. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, no amount of solar geoengineering changes the long-term risk of, of, of CO2 accumulating in the atmosphere. Well, you see all these trends, and you've been out there on the ground, actually, or in the water in some of these places. Um, you know, there's always the optimistic, pessimistic. Uh, let me try realistic. What's your realistic sense of how this is going to play out? Ooh, a shake of the head. Yeah, that's, I, that's I, a little worrying. I'm, I'm, uh, I think the humans will protect themselves for, from these natural fluctuations, especially wealthier humans. But um, I really do fear that we'll turn the natural world into an artifact and pave it over fast. And I view this as partly an attempt, this is in many ways, to give our great-grandkids more of a chance to see more of the, the natural world that we inherited and evolved from, which is deep in us, and people need that. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the things that really motivates me. I think, I'll say one key thing. Um, people have an idea that all of these attempted interventions always fail. Mm. And you can think of lots of examples from cane toads or in Australia or mongoose in Hawaii that were introduced to control the rats. There's lots of these examples that have failed. There's actually lots that have succeeded too. And, mm -hmm. and if you I think people's view about whether they all fail or succeed shows people's kind of underlying pessimism or optimism, but there's no objective answer. Okay. And, and there are plenty of times where we've done a combination of, of, um, of, of dealing with the root problem and then a technical fix on top. So in fact, uh, my, my parents were involved in peregrine falcon reintroduction. As a kid, I actually helped a little bit. I, we had peregrine falcons in my basement and were releasing them on boxes in this place in Ottawa. And my father had been involved in getting DDT banned. Mm -hmm. And so, so we really did both strategies with peregrine falcons. We, we dealt with the root problem, which was organochlorine pesticides cascading mm -hmm. in the food chain. Yep. But we dealt with it slowly. But we also had an artificial program mm -hmm. to breed peregrine falcons in a completely artificial way under, under prairie falcons in a controlled environment. And then... Mm -hmm reintroduced them in so-called hack boxes, what falconers called them, all over North America. And that helped to make the falcons come back more quickly. Mm -hmm. And does that mean that it's all artificial? Does that mean that when you see a falcon now today, it's a complete artifact and it's not natural? Well, you could argue that as an extreme case. But I think the answer is that we, we, we must take responsibility for, mm -hmm. for um, trying to manage the natural world that we have mangled. That's an interesting case in, where you treated both the symptom and the cause. The cause yeah. being the DDT and the symptom being, uh, by the way, don't have any birds left. So that's like CDR and SRM, about carbon, mm. carbon removal and, and mm. solar geomachinery. You can make this argument. Here's a way to say it. A guy called Bill Clark, one of my mentors in this business, I, I talked about this in, I think, first in 89 or something. I heard him talk on, on geomachinery. He said that um, uh, we... we we have to admit that we're, we're, we're in the gardening business with the planet whether we like it or not. The question is whether we're going to pretend we're not 
and have a messy garden where we just let our refrigerators and old tires out in the backyard and fill it with, with, with trash, mm-hmm. or whether we get serious about taking responsibility for it and weeding it and managing it. But at this point, we can't claim to be a little tiny thing against a big wilderness. I've mm-hmm. been privileged to see some of that wilderness, but humanity is a monstrous force on the planet. Mm-hmm. And if we want to maintain some of the natural beauty and, and, and biological integrity, we have to be conscious about it. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, there are lots of ways in which that's happening at the level of national parks or ideas like Yellowstone to Yukon. And I see being conscious about managing the radiative forcing of the atmosphere, the, the climate mm-hmm. change, as being a, a weird and large and unprecedented uh, part of the same story. We are as gardeners and have to get good at it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.